0: My name is Jonah Davids and I'm the producer of the CSBI podcast. I'm filling in for Richard to introduce this episode, which was originally recorded for Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning podcast. In the episode, Richard and Razib discuss the Israel-Palestine conflict, wokeness, culture and institutions, Chinese dominance in the 21st century, public health failures following COVID-19, and what it's like to run a think tank. Enjoy. I'm here with a repeat guest uh, for some of you. Uh, Dr. Richard Hanania. And, uh, you know, if you don't know about Richard, uh, you are not paying close attention. Um, since the last time I talked to him, which was like six months ago, and, and I, you know, I would say I talk to Richard fairly frequently, just he gives me a different heterodox perspective. He's always fun, fun y, and interesting, whether you agree with him or disagree with him. But um, he's kind of blown up. Uh, a lot has happened. Uh, he's said a lot of things and gotten a lot of reaction. And so uh, I'm excited to talk to him about Israel, Palestine, uh, American culture, and whatnot, politics. Uh, Richard, can you introduce yourself?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, I'm Richard Hanania. I'm the president of the uh, Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, a new think tank doing a lot of interesting work. And I am also a um, research fellow at Defense Priorities, and I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I have my own sub-stack. I'm just I just like to look for avenues to share my opinions. So that's pretty much what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, in some ways you almost do provocation, uh, uh arbitrage. Uh, I, th- I think you provoke, I think, no, I think, you, I think you provoke people in a good way. You know, uh, you go where, uh, angels <laughs> fear to tread. Although sometimes if, if those of you who follow Richard's Twitter, um, Follow it and watch closely because he will delete some of the best tweets. I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> you know, the, the the best stuff is like an Instagram whatever story.
1: Turn people off. Come on now, <laughs> people are gonna go and, and try to try to catch me. <laughs>
0: um, in any case, all right. Um, so Israel and Palestine. I want to talk to you about this because you you sometimes tweet things a little against the American grain. I think like a lot of Americans, um, it's just kind of something in the background of our lives. Uh, as we're, as we're recording right now, BB is no longer prime minister, which is the first time in like a dozen years, he's kind of been, you know, a generational figure from the nineties for a little while. And then he kind of came back in the two thousands or late two thousands. Um, you know, so there was some conflict, there was some battle lines. Okay. We know, we know what the, what the top line, you know, of this all is Israel is the only democracy in the middle East. It's our ally um we need to like love israel as much as the us also the palestinians are oppressed marginalized people um they are the most oppressed people in the world i mean i'm being a little sarcastic here but like these are these are the the cutouts that i see from both sides so um you know can you t- tell us what your perspective is just so that we get something a little bit different here
1: yeah, I mean, so I, you know, my main area of focus and expertise is in uh, international relations, and I'm a Palestinian, so you might think I, you know, have uh, strong opinions on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, I, you know, I really I really don't. I mean, I think that, you know, what the people on the Israeli side will say is that uh, the Palestinians don't want to or don't have the capacity to make peace. Uh, what the Palestinians will say is that Israel is uh occupying their land and you know kick them off their land and is a, engaging in a form of ethnic cleansing in certain uh certain areas in uh, east jerusalem and both of them are you know both of those perspectives are pretty much right um and there's not like much you know intellectually interesting about the problem of israel palestine because it's been sort of in a stalemate for decades and decades i mean how to how to conflicts end i mean one side crushes the other, uh, often. And so that's, uh, you know, that, that's not going to happen. Israel is, uh, you know, not going to do that for political reasons, even the U S which, you know, uh, which is somewhat, um, you know, was very differential to Israel is is probably going to give them some problems if they try to do that. There's internal resistance to that within Israel. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes like you have a dictator who just forces one side to make peace. I mean, the, the, uh, when Egypt and Jordan and, uh, these, when these countries made peace with Israel, I don't think there was popular support for, it, but they were dictators who could basically tell their countries what to do. Uh, you know, they have a, a in in uh, the Palestinian uh, in Gaza. You know, you had a, uh, uh, you had Hamas come to power. You know, so they're a revolutionary movement. Their ideology is not going to allow them to make peace. Uh, so we're basically, you know, this this is what, what it's going to be for a very long time. I, you know, I think if you just summed up the history, I, I, a decade ago, I don't think it looks much different than uh, today. Two decades ago, I don't think it, you know, it didn't look much different. Uh, today, it doesn't look much different. I think, you know, eventually, the you could get. Uh, sort of a right wing radicalization of Israel so- Israeli society. It's happening gradually, but because of the demographics, because of the or- ultra orthodox having uh, so so many kids, uh, you know, I think you'll get to the point where you know Israel just sort of does the uh, more more uh, uh, sort of strenuous kind of ethnic cleansing thing and doesn't really care what the rest of the world thinks. Uh, that's not go- that's not going to happen probably in the immediate future. Uh, but you know, that's the only real way I, I see this thing eventually ending.
0: Well, I mean, what would you say to my contention that Israel started out a settler colonial state, but it's turning into a Middle Eastern state?
1: Uh, so a Middle Eastern state in this, well, I mean, in the sense that, uh, how how do you mean that?
0: Um, So, you know, it was predicated on a sort of European, I don't want to say linguistic nationalism, but, you know, the Jewish nationalism, secular Jewish nationalism, uh, you know, the um the alignment movement, you know, that labor came out of and whatnot. And then over time, uh, the arrival of massive numbers of Mizrahi, Sephardic and Yemeni Jews uh, kind of introduced a new element of, you know, it's not necessarily accurate or precise to call them Arab Jews, but they were Jews from, you know, Araby, the Arab lands. And so these are not people that went through the European experience and, uh, over time, you have these ultra-Orthodox, these Haredi that are growing in numbers, as well as the rise and coalition, coalescence of a, of a national, national religious, uh, sentiment, which is kind of like a, a little different than anything that existed in the early 20th century. Um, and these elements are not out of a European national tradition from the 19th century. Um, something like the Haredis, um, I think they resemble some sort of, you know, like, um uh, like the Shia minority in Lebanon. You know, they're more, they're, they, you can imagine them more like that. Like, you know, that's what I'm trying to say.
1: Um, so, yeah, I mean, these are, I mean, I, I think, I mean, it's just simpler to say it's gone from a secular, uh, more of a secular nation state to more of a religious state. Um, that just might be the most simple, you know, explanation of what's going on. And, you know, the, the, it's, it's differential for, uh, fertility. Um, I think that's happened actually uh, in a lot of places across the Middle East. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a transition and, you know, the idea that, um, you know, for what I'm talking about, whether they would, you, you know, the the sort of the means with through which they deal with the uh, uh, with the minority uh, eth- ethno uh, religious uh, uh, rival, you know, within their borders or uh, across their borders. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's much of a difference in the way that a uh, Middle Eastern state and a at uh, an ethno nationalist, uh, you know, uh, early 20th century European state uh, would deal with that. I mean, the the ethno nationalist uh, European state, you know, before. Say the post World you know, before uh, uh, the Second World War. I mean, I think they pr- would have dealt with, uh, you know, their opponents pretty harshly. But uh, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, I, they, there is um, there is a, a certainly an evolution into a more religious state, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, with all that entails. I mean, that there's there's too much too many
0: differences to go. Well, into. I mean, it could be it could be in 30 oh. to 40 years. We couldn't imagine gay pride marches in Tel Aviv. You know, I I think you are a little skeptical about some of the Likud hawks in the United States. You know, uh, just for the international listeners out there, there is a fraction of the Republican Party, um, which is really, you know, and I do, you know, lean to the right myself personally. But um, I will say it's just a little strange to me about how they seem to like place Israel Um, right next to the United States as if their loyalties are equal to both. And, um, you know, I I think you kind of like to poke fun at that. I mean, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the worthlessness of the American conservative movement is sort of a theme throughout my work. And one of the, you know, one of the, Uh, one of the symptoms of this is their slavish devotion to Israel. I mean, I don't think it's a a voter... I mean, I don't think it's as much... It's it's somewhat of a popular support thing, but it's mostly a donor's thing, and it's mostly a... They they get excited when they can call the Democrats anti-Semitic because Democrats are always calling them intolerant, racist, or sexist, or homophobes. So the one thing that they get to call Democrats is anti-Semitic. So I think they just really, really indulge in being sort of the PC enforcers uh, for once. Um, and then you have, you know, you have the, the donors and the and the power seeking. And it really is pathetic. I mean, there was a, a, a couple of weeks ago, there was a who was posting on his, his Twitter account, just like different like Republican senators um, who were coming up to him and like groveling to him. So what was like Lindsey Graham? And, he, you know, he, he says uh, he gives Lindsey Graham, I don't know, like a certificate or something or like something to like show like he's a, you know, a friend of Israel. And like Lindsey Graham holds it up like he's like a five year old. And like, you know, he just got I just got a cookie or something. And then is and then Nanyahu sort of rolls his eyes at the camera like, oh my god, this guy is contemptible. Like he, he just embarrassed him. Uh and then, and, so, and so you know, he, this stuff happens a lot. And there was one with Ted Cruz, you know, where you know the US pays for uh uh Israel's uh, Iron Dome. And then you know Ted Cruz says, you know, thank you, you know, Mr. Nanyahu for all you do, thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. Um, you know, thank you for Iron Dome, and you know, Nanyahu's like, no no, thank you. I mean that it was paid for by the US. And so, so these guys are just, you know, they're, they're just completely embarrassing. I mean, they don't, you know, they complain about, they run on certain things and they complain about certain things that have popular support. And when they get into power, and you know, what what they show they really care about, it's, it's something completely different.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, what I'm getting from you is you think that this will just kind of continue until it evolves and just fades into, you know, Israel will solve its Palestinian problem, um, so to speak. Um, the, by just not having Palestinians within the borders of Israel—that's what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, they
1: yeah, I, I, well, I mean, no, I, I think I don't know if that's gonna—I don't know if they're gonna kick out the uh, Palestinians who are already there. Um, but I think there's gonna be—I I think there's just gonna be less, you know, I think there's gonna probably gonna be harsher responses to say missiles coming from Gaza. Um, I think you're gonna see like you know less concern with uh, humanitarian things, and you know if if there is but you know Israel's a first world country so you, you can have rest of minorities in a first world country and that doesn't have to uh that doesn't have to ever be solved right you could just that could that could just be an equilibrium that goes on forever and you see some of this i mean with the uh arab like gulf states like during the trump administration uh just giving up on the palestinians not liking you know just just not caring uh uh the uae uh and these other countries um and the, you know the saudis but the, the, all of the saudis didn't uh, officially uh normalize relations uh so you know the region i mean I mean with the except uh, with the exception of iran uh has sort of moved on from the uh, palestinian cause um i think you know and, and you know i think that even if the u.s turns against israel you know it's hard to imagine but you can imagine to be a very left-wing administration um you know what could the u.s do i mean it the, the u.s gives a lot of aid but the aid is not decisive right they, they don't need the uh, u.s aid to, to uh uh, to put down the Palestinians or or to, or to uh, defend their na- defend their national security. Uh, so yeah, I, I think this is probably going to continue for a few decades. I think Israeli society will continue moving to the right. Um, there'll probably be harsher measures against uh, the Palestinians. And you know, I, I I don't you know if we talk in ten years about this, I, I don't I don't know if it'll be much different.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um. You know, I, I feel like we could have the similar conversation ten years ago. So uh, you know, I, I think there's not that much. Um, Daylight between us on this, to be honest, Um, both kind of informed by a certain cynicism. I'm older than you, but I've just seen this happen decade after decade. It never ends. It never changes in a fundamental, deep, structural way. And these politicians just keep talking and talking and talking about it, you know, and I think a lot of people are sick of it. So uh, I want to move on to, uh, you know, this wasn't uh, on the agenda uh, really when I uh, contacted you, but um, your piece um, woke institutions is just civil rights law on your substack. Uh, has really blown up. Um it got you all over the Twitters, all over the social media, and I think you, know, you've gotten on you've gotten on the TV, you know, you've gotten uh, you know, Richard Hanania and 2D, you know, in full color. Or maybe not too much color, but in any case that's a different <laughs> issue. <laughs> um so uh this is a big deal. Um why conservatives won't and can't fight for influence and what to do about it. Follow up to why everything is liberal. Uh and so uh, talk about it uh, give 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 the listeners a, a pressy of, of what's going on here what you propose and what the reactions been.
1: Okay so the i mean wokeness is like all the republicans talk about so the cpac conference this year for the international listeners that's the, uh, the yearly uh, conference of uh, conservative activists it was called america on cancel that was the uh, uh, that was the that was the slogan of the conference right you could the, the way you know they make their pitch to the electorate that during the trump campaign the rnc i mean the, all they talk about is cancel culture they talk about wokeness you watch fox news it's woke outrage after woke outrage oh mr potato head is now going to be gender neutral. Uh, you know, oh, the leprecha- you know, the Lucky Charms leprechaun is going to be transgender. I mean, it, it's, it's stuff like that all day. I don't think that one has actually happened, but you know, it's it's like something you can imagine happening, right? Yeah, it, yeah. It's just like really, really. It's just this stuff all day, and you know, I, I don't like the cultural changes. I mean, I agree with I agree, I agree with the sort of this critique, and unfortunately, there's like you know, if we debate healthcare, if we debate taxes, it's like one side wants to raise taxes, one side wants to lower taxes, one side wants to expand healthcare coverage, or one side doesn't want to expand healthcare coverage, so there's like you know there's a clear idea of what each side wants to do and conservatives don't have that i mean they have this thing that is the center of their um, you know their appeal to the electorate at a center you know the center of sort of uh, what's motivating a lot of people to go into politics um, and there's just nothing there now I think that this has just been a conceptual mistake. I think people are ignoring, you know, the large fact, and you know they're ignoring it. I think for you know if we could talk we could talk about why later. Uh, but what they're ignoring is basically woke institutions has been the law. So civil rights law, the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964 said you can't discriminate based on race. So it, through a combination of what bureaucrats were doing, uh, what judges were doing, what uh, uh, the uh, presidents uh, in the 60s and the what uh, LBJ and uh, Nixon did through executive orders, what 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 that turned into was a series of steps which basically said institutions have to believe that disparities are caused by discrimination, that you're not allowed to have that another view. The federal government forces you if you want to contract with the federal government, they forces you to count your employees by race and by gender and make sure there are no disparities. Right. That's that's up to you. That's your responsibility. Um, every every go- in every government and every federal every uh, every um, uh, department of the federal government has to do the same things to these executive orders on, on the rest of the private sector. There's like I said disparate impact if any dispar- if if you're doing anything if you want to give an intelligence test if you want to give a fitness exam and one group does better than the others that's also that's also a sign of discrimination h so what what happens so they said this, this you know this is sort of it's sort of vague because like everything has a disparate impact, so like you don't really know like what's legal or not, and so you become very risk averse um, you develop an HR bureaucracy. So I have data on, uh, uh, uh the, the number of people were working in human resources, uh, from like the 1960s to today, people working in uh, they used to call them, uh, uh, affirmative action or, uh, equal employment off, op- uh, em- offices. Uh, they had these incorporations now, you know, there'll be diversity, uh, inclusion equity these things take off in the 1960s why do they take off because people need to keep up with the law they need to have a defense if they ever go uh and they're being sued right and and so you know it, 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 and and the EEOC which is the arm of the government that's enforcing this stuff gets some really really big settlements right it goes after uh uh some cor- uh some corporations, right and it gets it gets it gets huge it gets huge settlements it sends a message to the rest of uh industry and You know, and there's also a concept of hostile work environment, which basically says, you know, if somebody finds something offensive, you know, that can be part of a pattern that can establish culpability for a a lawsuit. So, what is wokeness? Wokeness is just the idea that disparities are caused by discrimination. We don't care about all disparities, right? We care about whites doing better than some some other group. We care about men doing better than women, but you know, disparities where women do better than men, no one, uh, no one cares about. So, it's a restriction on speech that's also part of wokeness, and the full time bureaucracy, I think, is also key to wokeness. You you see the. Uh, protests on college campuses, and they'll often, you know, one of their demands will be like hire five new diversity trainers. I mean, it's really, it really is. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a really, really strange movement. Uh, they just wanna, they just wanna sort of talk to you about your, you know, your thought crimes forever. Um, mm-hmm. And this is all, and this is all either law or it's traceable to law. If a, if a, see, look, look, I put it like this: if you take like an, an article from, say, City Journal, or maybe the more edgy stuff, even from National Review. Um, on race, or race and gender, you see some kind of article like that, and like a CEO just expressed the views in that article, that's borderline illegal, right? So conservatism is basically sort of illegal in institutions. I mean, it, you know, it's 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 iffy, and there's a a lot depends on the interpretation of the uh, the regulator and the judge, but you know, businesses and institutions tend to be risk averse. And so, what you happen is, what happens is, what you end up with is basically every institution looks like you know what we see today. They're all woke. There's no risk in being woke. I mean, there is. You could alienate customers, uh, but there's no legal risk, right, uh, from doing that. Um, and there's no way t- to be basically a conservative institution without painting a huge target on your back. Uh, so you know, I was f- sort of frustrated how directly related this stuff is to policy and how little people seem to realize that. Um, and I mean the reaction. I mean it's uh, the libertarians love it. People are always like, "Oh, you know, we are the new right," and libertarians are just weak and they refuse to do anything about you know wokeness. But no, the libertarian. I mean this this lined up perfectly with what libertarians believe because they think government is bad and they you know they don't like anti discrimination laws. And so uh, Brian Kaplan, you know, said it was like you know like the best article I'd ever written, and you know people like that really liked it. Um, Reason magazine, uh, I think I think liked it, um, and. Then, uh, uh, or Reason magazine might have liked the one, uh, one, one or two of b- the articles before that. Um, and then, you know, yeah, like the people on the populist right liked it too. Um, like the American Mind uh, reprinted the article, um, and uh, yeah, I, and some liberals. Uh, had like tepid criticism. I think Iglesias said, you know, if this is the, you know, he said this could be like a new fusionism be- between the anti, P- you know, the basis of a new. F- uh, he said, I'm hearing so much, you know, praise for this from libertarians. This could be the basis of a, like a return to fusionism with the anti-PC right and the libertarians uh, coming together. Uh, and then some people said, you know, uh, that uh, you know, some people had tepid criticism. Some people said, oh, it's just Jim Crow. You know, these were the, the you know, the stupider, uh, uh, the, you know, among the stupider commentary uh but yeah i mean i think (laughs) i think taking this healthy energy of like not liking what's going on um and turning it into something you know positive that you, you could actually do about it you know i think that's i think that's something we should encourage and if you think there's nothing you could do about it just stop talking about it don't don't have a political party you know focused on it
0: yeah i mean you know it's interesting to me um as we're as we are recording right now um i'm hearing that uh I, I saw a friend, an old friend that I've known for many years, uh, wonder why CRT is being talked of so much. Uh, it's in a weird academic thing. And this friend doesn't have children, and he never plans to have children. Um, and I just kind of basically said, well, it's affected our our family. And I'm not going to give personal examples because, you know, my children have their privacy, and you know, so I'm not going to just say what happened to them and what happened to our family. But um, it's affecting us. Uh, it's not, you know, they're not reading Kimberly Crenshaw or whatever. I don't know all these different things. I don't care. I don't care what these things are. Um, but it's affecting the culture. So conservatives, I'm um, going back to well, not just going back to but Andrew Breitbart family said, um, you know, uh, politics is downstream of culture, right? Are you kind of saying the reverse?
1: yeah I think the reverse is true I think that's I think that's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a cope uh, I think I think yeah I think power ultimately uh, drives culture more than the I mean they're obviously they co-evolve and they, they work together but I think and every case has to be taken on a case-by-case basis uh, I, I think in this case though you could you could trace pretty you could trace from civil uh, civil rights interpretation of the civil rights law uh, to the rise of HR and bureaucracy you could trace that you know and I do that in my paper uh, pretty clearly clearly. Um, and, uh, you know, you talked about critical race theory. Why is it being in taught schools? Look, there's all these fads that come along. So there used to be the implicit association test, you know, all about the replication crisis and all that uh, It turned out to be nonsense. But, you know, it was promoted by, you know, you know, th- these corporations, they just want to make money and they don't want to be sued. And like fads come along and there's just a market for it because they're looking, they're basically looking for defenses, right? When the EEOC or uh, some lawsuit comes after them. Um, and, you know, they're not social scientists. They don't know what's going on, right? So they're just like pulling things off the shelf. And this opens up opportunities for entrepreneurs. So the Implicit Association does that thing where you see a picture of a white face and a picture of a black face, and you see which one you're more positive. You know, it's all de- been debunked. Um, it's all nonsense. Uh, but that was, that was you know, in, in the corporate world for a while. Uh, and so you have, you know, you have Robin DiAngelo, critical, uh, Critical race theory, training. people say, oh, there's a difference, you know, academic critical race theory versus the populism. Yeah, of course, but like, you know, it's it's pretty much the same, you know, the same ideas at the core. Um, and yeah, I mean, one thing courts do is they say, or regulators do is they say, a back, you know, they adopt the best practices. Approach. If they want to know if you're practicing enough affirmative action for a government contract or you're having a non-discriminatory environment, they want to see that you're doing what other people are doing. Because they don't care about evidence. none of these people are social scientists. Nobody cares about evidence, right? You're just you're just trying to basically. Get by. You create these bureaucracies. These bureaucracies uh, within the the corporation, the uh, DEI people and the HR people, they start to have they have their own views and they start to have their own uh, interests. And so, yeah, critical race theory. I mean, it's something I I think it's ugly and evil, like many people say, and I I wholeheartedly support efforts to ban it in whatever whatever form uh, you can. But it's part of a larger story. And when it goes away, if it if it goes away, you know something else will come later if you don't deal with
0: the root of the problem. And so, uh, is this kind of a hopeful message?
1: Yeah, I think so. Look, it's executive orders. You could you could get rid of affirmative action in the federal government, and look, we have look, we haven't. Nobody's tried it. This is the thing. It's like there is a path. And Republicans have been talking about democratizing Iraq and taxes and guns, you know, for for years. And you know what? The things that they've talked about and the things they've actually cared about, they've went to bat for. Um, tax cuts. Uh, their precious wars, and uh, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff, uh, and the gun, you know, guns, gun laws, sometimes something will have 90% support some kind of gun control measure, and it won't get passed just because the Republicans have political power, and they're so, you know, they're, they're uh, so united on this issue. Um, So yes, I think, I think I have hope that politics can do something. It it hasn't been tried uh, in this area. And you know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, uh, you know, it's, it's, and it's indirect, you know, I'm trying to get a culture through law, and it didn't happen overnight. Where you know, this so these uh, broad interpretations of civil rights law led to you know, sort of where we are today, it let you know, it was decades, and there was a, a you know, society had to sort of evolve in a certain direction, so it wouldn't change the culture over overnight. You'll still have your Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss stories for a while, no matter what. Uh, but you know, you 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 take the sort of the boot off the neck of institutions, you create fewer opportunities for the civil rights commissars. And, you know, hopefully you just hope for in a few decades, good things happen.
0: Okay. Um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty positive. I mean, you know, depending on what your political orientation is, I know some of the listeners, uh, um, they might be alarmed by this. They might love critical race theory. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, SPP. you know, so, <laughs> you know, but uh, it's definitely like resetting the terms of the debate. I do think a lot of conservatives, to be frank, me, myself, uh, you know, we've been pretty pessimistic and bearish. And you know this is kind of like okay, we we might I'm, be able I'm to do sure. something about this, you yeah. know?
1: Yeah, I'm bearish. Like it's like they have to listen to me, and then they have to win this political fight, and then they have to like wait and hope it evolves in a way that it works, right? But at least there's a path. You know, that's all I'll say. It's a lot. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so With I want to I want to I wanna ask you about your bear Baron, uh, United States. Um, you know, United States year 2040, United States year 2099. Like, do you have any thoughts on what you think the most likely outcome of the various demographic and cultural forces are going to be in this country? Uh, I,
1: th- you know, 2099, I wouldn't trust anybody who tried to focus uh, that far into the future. Uh, 2040, I guess, is not that far. Uh, I think, you know, you know, I, I think, our po- I, you know, I think there's deep structural things what's going on with American politics uh I think that you know we're we're a rich society, we're a highly divided society um and we are you know divided by divided by you know then there's a there's an established conservative media and there's established liberal media. Um, and I think this, I mean, and people tend to think, you know, people see like instability. So this is what we talked about before me versus like, uh, Peter Churchin and Peter Churchin said, um, you know, we're, we're, we're more likely that I can have a civil war. And I said, no. And I think, you know, it's, it's been like a year since we've had that debate. And I think I'm clearly, you know, I, I think it's, it's looking more like I was right. And I, you know, I, I think that I'm going to continue to be right on that. I think the system is stable. I mean, I think when you have people fighting over, um, Uh, Sort of symbolic, you know, symbolic things. And you have these institutions. I mean, and the institutions are strong. I mean, they're strong in the sense that they preserve themselves. There was when the Internet popped up um, and social media popped up and there was, you know, there was a time when like the New York Times and the Washington Post were losing readers. And, you know, you could think that like... They would go away and they'd be replaced by like Alex Jones and Joe Rogan being like the most important people in American politics. I mean, it looked like we could have been heading in that direction for a little while. Uh, but then they, you know, they censored like people like Alex Jones and the people who are far right and, you know, Joe Rogan. I mean, he's still around. He, he, he's doing his he's uh, doing the Spotify thing now. Um but ba- but basically, you know, the, they they adjusted the power adjusted, so the New York Times and Washington Post have more readers now than ever. You know, they, they were they were losing influence for a while. Now it's just going through uh, going through the roof. Um, and yeah, part of it was they basically, you know, they they leaned on they and their uh, and politicians leaned on leaned on, um, leaned on uh, uh, Silicon Valley the tech companies to sort of rework their algorithms, right? So you, you wouldn't find mm-hmm. you know the the, the, the so called dangerous stuff at the top of it, and they you know they started they started uh, they started deciding what was credible news what was not credible news that they started gaming the system in, in their favor. Um, so I think the lesson I mean the lesson of that So like There was a point where I think if you kept Like the Google algorithm What it was in like 2012 Or uh, you know and, and YouTube You know what it was Around that time I don't know if YouTube was, was big in 2012 But I think if you kept Like you know The the pre-2015 internet And just sort of Let things develop You could have had Some radical things happen um, But they you know But but power but power adjusted And you know It's still the biggest You know The, the, the biggest uh, You know The biggest uh, Influencers are still also New York Times, uh, CNN, uh, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, uh, the establishment, which is mostly mostly the same people are the same kind of people. Um, and so I don't think I don't think we're in a situation where we're going to see radical change in the next 10, 20 years. I mean, I think that's the greatest extent possible. We're going to be you know, I think America is going to uh, you know, the system is pretty stable. Um, I think that the rise of China is going to you know, potentially have a psychological uh, impact. Um, you know, it's 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 the you know the projections are it'll have two or three times uh, the economy of the U.S. by say like 2050. Um, I think that a lot of people are looking for reasons to think China's going to collapse or fall or you know uh, you know this used to be the idea that they would democratize that's going away. The people used to believe they would collapse. I mean, I think that's becoming less credible despite Gordon Chegg still, you know, being on TV, uh, promoting his book. Um, I think if they, you know, if they get their birth rates up and that looks like they're going to start, like, actually making that a huge priority, you know, I think it could be quite shocking to the United States because, like, the be only the last, like, cope they have of, like, American, uh, you know, maintaining its edge and even even with I mean, even with the demographic projections, China is still going to be a bigger economy. But, you know, the idea that it's going to have sort of long term, uh, uh, long term, unable to keep up while U.S. has this uh, uh, immigration system that lets people in. You know, some people are pessimistic about that. But, you know, I think the mainstream view is, OK, so the uh, the demographics are being replenished. Um, I think if China gets the birth rate up, I think it's going to be, you know, your, people are going to look and they're going to say, you know, this is, <laughs> you know, we, we've lost our spot. And, and I don't know, like, how you know, and you could imagine like a. Um, uh, You could imagine like a showdown over Taiwan or something. And, you know, the idea that the China is going to have twice the economy of the U.S. and the U.S. is going to be able to like, you know, beat it in a war in its own backyard. I think that's very naive. I think that's, you know, and I think would be crazy to try. I think would be crazy to, you know, go to war over Taiwan or something. So you could imagine Mm -hmm. a showdown where the U.S. uh, backs down and there's something that happens. But but then like, you know, I, I think back to like Hong Kong and like, you know how people were like all on Twitter and like we're like uh you know, I stand with Hong Kong and you know they just crushed the democracy movement, right? I mean they just they just and now we don't remember Hong Kong. And so Taiwan could be the same thing. Maybe we're just so in our bubble. Um, nothing can psychologically sort of, sort of burst it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think everything gets sort of everything gets wrapped up in the same narrative. And we still sort of think America is the best, but we also think like the other side is either Nazis or like whoa, crazy totalitarians who are destroying the country. Uh, but there's still this idea that like still america is better than everyone else in the world um and yeah I th- I, you know I, I think there's i think there's going to be more that uh, more of that in the future
0: well so um you know you have a piece you're talking about china you have a piece why most china analysis is just cope i do have to say richard uh your uh your sub stack you're, you're you're good with the titles you're good with the topics um definitely i can see you know people are probably clicking through to read this stuff i think i'm Pretty much agree with a lot of your points, and I want you to like to summarize it for the listener in a bit. But um, one question I do have about China is its workforce, its labor force is going down. It has, you know, serious issues with its future dependency ratio. Um, I wonder if that's going to be just a major drag on its rise to prominence. I mean, the peak of American power was during the baby boom, arguably. Well, maybe baby boom, and then also maybe the late 1990s, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know uh, how you measure that. But uh, our demographics were not nearly um, as concerning, I guess, back then. So, I mean, how do you... I mean, I know you said that, oh, they want to turn around their their birth rate. But, I mean, Singapore tried to turn around its birth rate. Now, Singapore is not like an apples-to-apples comparison. It's a city-state. But, you know, countries that have tried to turn around their birth birth rate have had a really difficult time. So, uh, that's the main issue where I'm just like, ah, these are serious headwinds.
1: Yeah, so... So, I mean, the way we talk about the birth rate issue, I mean, I think, I don't know if you remember, like, five, ten years ago, people were saying similar things about Russia. You know, a lot of countries have low birth rates when they, you know, developing in a developed world. And it's, you know, it's when people don't, you know, when people in America or analysts don't like the country, they they make it into a much bigger problems than than you might you might think it should be objectively. So, like, when you're talking, so it depends on what you're talking about. So if you're talking about China and, like, relative to Taiwan, Taiwan's demographic graphics are are worse. Taiwan's birth rate is lower. Nobody says Taiwan will never be able to defend itself because it has no birth rate. So it's just going to be like half the size, you know, in, in a few generations. Uh, so that's something you have to remember. If you're talking about China relative to a lot of its neighbors, a lot of its neighbors are in the same position uh, or worse. Um, and then as far as the um, uh, you know whether China say you know has enough power to challenge the U.S. The I mean the there's also the other you know the other the other point is that it's just still a middle-income country. Middle-income countries grow faster than higher-income countries so if you just do the projections and you include the um and you include sort of the demographic information i mean without any you know real turnaround in chinese birth rates china will still have like twice or three times the economy of the u.s i mean that's just going to happen unless you get deglacius's uh one billion americans um so yeah i mean it's it's uh the country you know is probably not going to achieve its full potential because it's going to you know if it gets older um they will you know there's um uh, as far as turning around the birth rate, I think you know. I think the, you know the, uh, you know we'll see. I mean the, 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 you know the Communist Party of China has really you know uh, confounded its critics at, at most points over the last uh, for uh, forty years or so. Um, a lot of people didn't think this uh, growth was possible. You know, I tend to think that the. Um, I tend to think it's mostly a cultural thing, the birth rate. So, you know, I think if you just have some, you know, financial incentives and, you you know, you don't change the culture and, you know, most democracies can't really change the culture. Singapore is a, you know, it's not a democracy, but it's something, you know, it's something more of an open country. And, you know, the Chinese, you know, the Chinese control the internet. You know, they have a pretty advanced surveillance system and they're highly competent. So, we haven't seen this movie before. We haven't seen this tried. And, you know, I don't don't know it'll work or it's not but you know i i I think it's still to be determined
0: yeah (laughs) um yeah you know again i i think you're on the right track you know what i like to point out to people is that the last time the united states was not the world's largest economy at least according to angus madison uh, was like about 1870 and then it was china so uh you know it's kind of like we're going back uh, to the way it was although obviously the world is radically different history doesn't repeat it rhymes yeah I, I i do think the psychological shock of not being number one though will have an impact on this country um in ways that are going to be hard to understand
1: yeah objectively i think the psychological shock should be like high, even more than you say because you say well 1870 China to have the Largest economy in the world, it was just because it just had so many. I mean, so many people. China was not at the cutting edge of science and technology. Now, if you look at like um, you know, per, like uh, patents. Uh, per capita, it used to be way, way behind. It's catching up. You know, it's doing you know amazingly for a middle-income country. And you have things like Huawei, where China is just the leader in five G. It's a leader in a lot of technologies. So it's it's not like China was like you know the the uh, most uh, technologically advanced or anywhere near it. I mean, it was always the West, right, it was the most advanced um, for the last you know few hundred years since the Industrial Revolution. Um, and so, or prob, you know, probably even more as far as, you know, just like a per capita living standards. I don't think it just started with the industrial revolution. Um, and so, yeah, but like, you know, our, uh, you know, so I think, you know, objectively, it's we're moving towards something different. Now, China passed the U.S. Um, in GDP as far as purchasing power parity, right? Um, a few, you know, uh, uh, a while ago, I think five, 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, that didn't really have a huge psychological effect. I don't think we talk about or think about China that much. Um. So yeah, I mean, why can't it pass us on all measures, and we still sort of just keep, you know, mm -hmm. talking about Black Lives Matter and critical race theory? (laughs) Well, I don't
0: know. I mean, people. uh, So PPP is uh, so like what PPC is purchasing power parity, right? And it's Uh like cheaper to live in some countries. Blah blah blah. I think. Um. So that's a talking point that people always make. Bangladesh recently surpassed India in nominal GDP per capita. But uh, its PPP is still lower, and Indians routinely point that out. So I think that, that that's, it is a cope, but it's a very plausible and robust cope from what I can tell. Uh, they might not even know what PPP means. They just know that they're higher on PPP. That's the key, right? And so I think, um, I, I think what it's going to impact is not the regular person because the regular person doesn't keep track of this stuff. But it's going to be on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. It's going to be like a feature in the New York Times. When the g when, when the aggregate GDP nominal gets bigger,
1: yeah, I mean it'll be it'll be a story. Um, you know, will it be something you know that we think about a lot compared to whatever you know whatever's going on with the equivalent of George Floyd, you know, whatever that is in, in five to ten years?
0: So, I, one thing that I'm wondering about is people are wondering, uh, you know, like, what is Richard Hanania's deal? Uh, people know that I I know you and I, you know, I have you know. There was a period when when you were a sub sub ten thousand uh, Twitter account. I was retweeting you because I thought you were fun and interesting. And now you have your own megaphone, so I don't retweet you as much. But uh, what what is up with the mega contrarianism? Because because I don't know what's up with that. People are always asking me like, "What is his deal? What is your deal, Richard?"
1: I mean, it's what what is? It? I just say what I think. <laughs> it's just it's just basically, you know, it's uh you know, I have a few passions. I mean, I've always cared a lot about American foreign policy. Um, I'm concerned about the, uh, uh, sort of the, the cultural trends we're seeing. You know, I, I dislike bad arguments, whether they're from people on my side or, you know, people on uh, the other side, but yeah, I don't feel a need to have like a, um, a political home. Right. I mean, I don't think it's like secret when I believe on any particular, uh, issue, um but you know i mean i sound like one of these like gender fluid kids man i don't need to put a label on it you know it's just like you know that, that's that's the way i feel you know i think you know i i you know i i don't think every domain has to be you know how you feel about every domain and uh, every uh sort of policy or has to be correlated with everything else right i think you know i think the the foreign policy i think the uh the the left i mean the real left not like the like rachel maddow like oh my god I, you know we love nato left i mean i think like the, the the like the jill stein uh you know i wouldn't go i mean i'm not you know i'm not endorsing jill stein uh, but uh you know the, the, the further left is right on foreign policy um i think conservatives are you know right on a lot of the cultural stuff but a lot of times they don't go far enough um on you know economic stuff you know i'm pretty much uh you know, I'm pretty much non-interventionist in the economy. I think markets work. Um, yeah, I mean, they, I don't think I don't think there's any like, I don't think there's like anything hiding, hidden here. It's just people sort of can't, you know, can't put it together and can't put an easy label on it.
0: Yeah, you know, I will say, many years ago, I used to do this thing where uh, I would routinely retweet or tweet out studies that I was skeptical of. And I did that because I'm curious about things that go against my prior so I can improve my understanding of the world, but people assumed it was an endorsement of the study. And so they would kind of express their anger at me. How could I, how could I accept such a study? And I would have to say, so what I'm trying to do is tweet out things that I don't always support because I'm just curious about different ideas and I might be wrong and change my view. And I just stopped doing it because I got sick of explaining that to people. Uh, because they just think whatever you tweet out must be what you believe. Sometimes things are just interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree. And, you know, it's sort of like, the I mean, I'm always interested, you know, a lot of sort of my commentary is, I guess, you know, maybe, you know, people can find this interesting or not. It's sort of, met, you know, meta narrative, right? I, I'm interested in the debate, the like the debate about the debate and the way we're framing the debate, right? I'm interested that like you know we're having this discussion about cancel culture right and it's just so policy free that's fascinating to me. i, I want to you know figure out something just sometimes figure out what's going to on sometimes try to uh influence it in a uh, in a more positive direction right um you know and uh yeah i mean it's um and you know you, you know sometimes you could say well you know i i ch- i changed my mind on this issue or you know i learned more i was like it, i was like more of the um covid uh you know, I started out on the COVID stuff. I started out very sort of, oh, lockdowns, we have to like be very careful. Just the evidence came in and talking to my uh, friend uh, Philippe Lemoine and his writing, I, I sort of went to the other side of that. So, the, you know, just sort of like being willing to look at evidence and, uh, uh, you know, sort of update your beliefs over time. You know, I think people appreciate that, or at least some people do.
0: Well, so, um, you know, I want to close out. I want to ask you then about COVID. Uh, uh, as a, you know, political, social observer, what are the lessons that you've drawn from COVID-19 pandemic and how different nation states and cultures reacted? Uh, I
1: think it's, um, you, know, I, I, you know, so at the beginning, there seemed to be like a simple story. The U.S. was really screwing it up. Uh, over time basically like and you know we, also the narrative was uh, Sweden you know had sort of got for the herd immunity thing in they script. Over time though uh, like they sort of all the countries sort of converged and there was hard in the West at least and there was a harder there was hard to find sort of any large policy difference and to me you know that like Philippe says this too you know for to justify lockdowns you have to have like a huge it can't save like you know a few lives or like have a five or ten percent. If you're going to like take away people's you know right to travel it's got to be a huge massive in fact, not just travel, but socialize and, you know, just live normally, give away a year of your childhood. I mean, that's huge. It's got to be – there's got to be a huge, huge payoff, right? And we just don't see that. Um, now, there was, you know, uh, successes in East Asia. Um, and so, uh, you know – Going back to you know, uh, uh, so going back to China, I mean the fact that it came first, whether it was lab leak or a lot, not and people debate that. The fact that it came first and they beat the thing, I mean, is pretty amazing. Be, you know, the, the, the so funny about the American uh, sort of getting angry with China is like they hid they hid this information from us, and if only they'd given it to us like a couple weeks sooner, we would have had all this. And it's just so funny because like we were doing nothing, like we had months and months of warning, and we were doing nothing, and like Trump was still saying, you know, the disease is going to go away any day now, like in June or July, right? So it's like if China. China had mm-hmm. told us two weeks before you know what was going on we would have got on top of it you know so, so, so it's it's pretty ridiculous so I think the Chinese response was uh, impressive um, I think you know the uh, Taiwan and South Korea have also done well um, I think the probably it's not um, it's probably in many of these cases I mean even Japan did well I think they've I think they their uh, cases of death rate has gone got up recently so I think Japan has done worse out of uh, worst out of the uh, the East Asian countries um, but still better than um, I, Pretty much all are are all the yeah. countries in the in the West, and you know the, I think uh, the you know culture and behavior matters a lot. I live in Southern California, and masks were normal for uh, Asians out here uh, before COVID. Um, you know, the, the, it's just part of the culture to wear masks and be very careful. And many a lot of the uh, a lot of uh, people I know from China or Korea are just super, super careful about COVID. I mean, they're still scared of it. They've been vaccinated, and you know, uh, uh, here where I live, you know, there's barely uh, there's barely any deaths anymore. They're still they're still freaked out. Um, so you know, all these things matter. Um, our institutions, you know, I think didn't do well. I think the public health has been a failure. I think public health should I mean, what it should have done is like like now it should realize that you know the if the policy doesn't matter much i mean i think you should give people the freedom but like you know even like with you know some of them were against um most of them according to a poll the new york times like we're against like uh Stop being wearing masks uh, after you've been vaccinated, like outside. I mean, it's abs- the the risk aversion, this you know, the safetyism, the kind of you know in- inability to do cost benefit analysis. And I don't know if this, uh, the American public health establishment is is I don't know if it's this man in other Western countries, this particular aspect of the uh, um, of the uh, of COVID. Uh, but I I've, I just was shocked by it. I actually, I I changed the mission of CSPI to a more policy focused area, just knowing that epidemiologists have power, right. That just is mm-hmm. frightening. How bad they are at logic and how bad they are at cost benefit analysis. We've got to we got to do something about it because another disease could come and I you know I'm really scared that the, of these people. It could be you know half as bad and they would be recommending you know the same the same uh, uh, strict measures or more. You know then when you can't do cost benefit analysis, you know anything is really anything is possible. Uh, so I think you know keeping this particular community up. I don't know if there's much that's. Um, Unique about them, it sort of reminds me. Of not, not a lot of people have made this connection, but like to the hysteria about the war uh, war on terrorism. Like the amount of money and resources we put into stopping terrorism after nine eleven, and like not even counting the wars, uh, was just ridiculous. It just was crazy from a cost benefit. Even if you stopped like four more nine eleve,ns you know, it just there was a book on this by uh, Mueller and Stewart. They just tried to do cost benefit, and see if any of the uh, anti terrorism uh, stuff made sense, and it was just people were just crazy. And you know, it was just like you know, we can't let a single case. We don't care how unpleasant. We make air travel. We don't care how hard we make people's lives. You know, it just we just have to get it down to zero. And so I think, you know, I think it's partly it's just living in a democracy and a sensationalist media. I mean, I think people freak out. I think people develop expertise, but their expertise doesn't make them better thinkers or better do cost benefit. All they can think of is, oh, I'm a terror expert. So all I have to think about is every way we could have terrorism or I'm a public health person. And I have to think just about how to maximize public health with no consideration of the economic costs or people's happiness or well-being. Um, uh, and this is this is a serious problem um and so yeah i'm I'm against expertise <laughs> against like the way our institutions are working right now and i think you know we just have to try to do things better
0: all right so I, i'm gonna ask you a last question I was gonna ask you this question but um you have been running this think tank uh for what a year now
1: about yeah uh not even a year i think like uh, nine months or something like that
0: so c s p i which uh it has an acronym that makes it sound like an um I don't know, private espionage operation and that you are the antagonist in some spy film, CSP, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, um, aside from that, uh, what have you learned then? What have you learned in uh, terms of I, running an organization like this, having impact, like making a difference?
1: You know, I think there is, you know, there is an audience out there. You know, uh, there was a there was a point where I thought the stu- you know I wanted to do like the best intellectual work and get the smartest people that you know that were in the field of uh, that were doing social science work or were talking about uh, important issues. And I thought there might be a trade off between that and sort of our growth. And maybe there is. I mean, if we were just doing complete clickbait stuff and I focused my mind 100 on that, maybe we'd be we'd be even getting more impact than we are. Um, but you know, I you know I, I did realize that it's maybe optimistic that there is an audience out there just for a smart uh just you know for uh smart you know data-driven uh analysis of, of the problems we're facing so i mean the fact that you know uh, uh philippe's um uh, article on, lo- on lockdowns, um, you know, it was, it was in the Wall Street Journal. Got to number one. It was covered everywhere. My stuff on civil rights law, it was covered. I think there, you know, there is a, um, you know, there is a, a, a hunger out there for, you know, I think for for smart analysis, for analysis that's driven not by tribalism, that, that's realistic, that you know puts forth solutions when they point out uh, there are problems. Um, whether that will actually convert, you know, to Policy influence, um, we'll still have to see, you know, I I think we're, we're, we're thinking more about that. I mean, you have to have not just a sort of theory of what's going wrong and like, uh, what you want to see done. But I, you know, what I try to do with the, uh, in the piece on uh, civil rights laws, try to, like, have some political commentary and have some kind of blueprint of how you get there in a realistic way. I mean, we, we, we consider these things. Uh, but yeah, you know, I've, I've learned, I've learned that the, you know, that that's, that's a optimistic part of what I learned that people are, uh, you know, that, the, that, there is, you know, interested, in, you know, uh, in high quality work um, at the same time. Um, you know, I've also, I think I've, you know, I've also realized that, um, you know, talent, t- you know, and there's also, you know, I'll say another thing. There's talent out there, and there's a lot of people out there who would want to be sort of in the public space but don't have. Um, anywhere to go so i've ha- i 've had you know we're not we 're not that huge i mean we've been in uh you know we you know we've been in a lot of media outlets you know we have uh social media presence uh but just like really really smart people who are just undergrads um who are just starting out at grad school um some with you know real data skills who can do good work are you know reaching out to us and say you know i 'm not a uh, you know, I'm not really a, um, a person who just comes down on one side of the political aisle, but I think you're doing really smart stuff and I want to be involved. Uh, you know, that's inspiring. So I, you know, I think you can model what you want in the world. I mean, there's tons of people with brains out there. There's tons of people who care about policy, who care about cultural issues, who want to make a difference. If all they see out there is like, you know, partisan bickering or, you know, commentary that's not very intelligent, they're going to, you know, they're going to be turned off. They're going to go into academia or they're going to go do something in the private sector and they're never going to put their, you know, their brains and their work ethic to making the world, uh, uh, making the world a better place. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, the importance, and you know, and also, I mean, I'll say another thing is like, you know, I didn't really model myself to be. I mean, I think you could, you know, you call me heterodox and for my Twitter, I didn't really model myself to like have a niche within conservatism or within liberalism, um, and. You know, sometimes you don't you don't have to do that. I mean, you think like, okay, find you know find your, your your place. Sometimes it's just about being being different, and not just different. You know, not different in a bad way, hopefully, but different in a good way. You're doing something that you know people will start to trust your objectivity, they'll trust your uh, analytical skills, and the, you know you want to bring people along who are also doing that. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think this market for what I'm doing, you know, smart commentary that doesn't you know that uh, that's honest and not trying to you know just uh, win points for one side or the other. I don't think that market is anywhere near saturated yet so people want to be involved with cspi they want to do their own thing you know please please reach out to me you know twitter's probably the easiest my uh my dms are uh, are open but yeah i mean I, I think you know my my experience so far has made me made me optimistic i'm not always optimistic on social trends and you know international affairs and the things I, co- I comment on but i but my experience so far has made me optimistic about the intellectual culture potentially changing at least
0: well i mean i think i think that's a good that's a good spot to end on um you know, Richard, I enjoy talking to you. Um, I think if the listeners, they like the stuff that I produce, um, you know, check out check out his Substack, check out his Twitter. Uh, it's always um, interesting, you know, whether you agree with it or not. And sometimes I'm just like, you know, what is, what is this guy doing, you know? But uh, it's, um, I find, you know, I, it's just, it's in, informationally dense, and uh, there's a lot of stuff to engage with there. Uh, you know, I think you know, I do have to observe. There's a lot of people out there. Um, I know exactly what they're going to say on all the issues they ever talk about. So I don't really pay attention to them. You know, like I have not watched Hannity since the 1990s. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. 1997, I watched Hannity and Combs. That was the last time I had a roommate who would watch it. And so the reason I don't watch it is, like, I don't care if he's kind of handsome for, uh, you know, a midwit. You know? Um, I just think, uh, you know exactly what he's going to say. He, he like, does a talking point. So I appreciate that you don't do that. Um, you, know, you speak your mind. Uh, you talk about the truth. And that's what's important. We don't have enough people like that in the world right now. Um, it's not that people lie, but they hold their tongue. Yeah. Okay? And uh, I like that you don't hold your tongue all the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes it's prudent uh, to hold your tongue a little bit of the time. Yeah. But, yeah um,
1: you you know. Know, what I tell people is you want to be brave, but if you're like, say, you're in a war and you're just like uh, running into machine gun fire, you know, you don't want to do that. You want to yeah, be brave. Yeah. Unless you wanna, you're, you unless you're,
0: leader. unless you're Gal Gadot. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Gal that's, Gadot. That's you, can, you, can, pull that out. you can pull <laughs> that up. You can pull that up. All right, Richard. Uh, it was great talking to you. Um, I will see you online, man. Yeah. I appreciate it. Rizzo. It was fun. Thanks.